Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridgeline from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network Headquarters. Uh, folks, today we are going to do a show we haven't done for a while because I was out of pocket for a while and uh, we haven't done a lot of the listener call shows lately. It means the backlog is worse than ever, uh, but we're going to knock one out today. This is a show where you in the past, and if you want to be on in the future, you do it today or in the future, you pick up your phone and you mash some numbers. You mash those numbers this way, 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. That is how you make a call. You get two minutes to leave your message. You do it quick, concise, and to the point. You don't do it from the back of a motorcycle or in a vehicle with the windows down or running a chainsaw. And you do it from a good, stable connection where you don't break up and go, Jack, I was wondering uh, 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 if you could uh, uh, sidearm. Uh. If you don't do any of those things and you do give me a clear call, we'll probably get you on the air within about two to three weeks. Right now, maybe four. I'm going to try to catch up on these things. I promise I keep saying it, uh, but it is unbelievable how many of the calls there are in the backlog. Now, uh, one note before I get into the housekeeping today, uh, I think this is really important for you guys to understand. I get people all the time, how do I get in touch with you? Jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Do not use the feedback line to try to get to me for something you want me to know today. Uh, a lot of the calls that are in there won't be listened to for three to four weeks at, at certain times. If you want to get a hold of me, use my email. It's better than Facebook. It's better than forum private messages. It's better than anything. It is the best way. I don't have a fake email or a trick email or an email screener or staff reading my email. When you email me, it comes to me. I just want to say that today because some things that have come up as I've been going through screening these calls. All right, before we get into your calls, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, MERS-radio.com. That's M-U-R-S, then a hyphen, the word radio.com. It's Rob over there, and I'll tell you the thing about Rob. Unlike a lot of people who try to be everything for everybody, um, Rob doesn't do it that way. Rob has a very small selection of MERS equipment and a few uh, hand devices. What does that mean? That means he knows his equipment cold. He knows every single thing his equipment can and cannot do. And everything that's available for his equipment as far as an accessory that he has, he knows cold. And even if it's something he doesn't carry, he knows where you can get it and he will help you. He's not greedy and does not have to have all the business. And what he can help you do is set up a secondary means of communications around your homestead that also does is a method of security where not only can you communicate with other people on your property but if somebody is on your property and goes past one of the motion detectors to your handheld radio or base station you will hear something like alert zone 1 or alert zone 2 now if you combine that with infrared cameras boy it gets really really cool now, he doesn't sell the infrared cameras it's just one idea that I'll be implementing this fall to go along with my merge system as soon as I find the right camera system to go with them but if you want secondary communications and security in one, check out MERS-radio.com. Next up today, Safe Castle Royal. Remember, Safe Castle is the original survival podcast sponsor. They are the very first people that came to me and said, hey, we want to 
you know, financially support the show and become a sponsor. That was almost three years ago, and they're still here. They also have a discount buyers club, $29 for a lifetime membership, and that gets you a big discount on just about everything they sell. And if you're MSB, member support brigade member, they give it to you for free. Uh, that's, that's a really big step for a sponsor to take, to, to not just be here that long, but to offer their premium discount program to our members for free. Uh, the so, folks that step up and support the show as well with the Member Support Brigade. Uh, I'm going to jump to the Member Support Brigade instead of doing it last today. Uh, it kind of dovetails nicely there because I want to point something out. While I was in Denver, I was doing a show, a, a, a special on the MSB, $35 for your first year. Uh, the discount code for that I put out on the blog, I put out on Facebook. I did not mention it on the show until today. Uh, and it will run through this weekend. I figured if I'm going to do it for people at the show, I should do it for everybody. And the uh, discount code is DENEXPO11, D-E-N-E-X-P-O-1-1. So DENEXPO11. And uh, that'll get you your first year for 35 bucks, and it does run through the weekend. Uh, of course, Member Support Brigade is how we pay the bills around here, how we support our support ourselves, and because uh, this is our full-time business now, Survival Podcast, and, and working with you guys. What do you get for that? Well, you support the show at 20 cents an episode. You get discounts from uh, 29 vendors now with a couple more to be added before the end of the year that we're talking to now about doing that. You get over $100 worth of free e-books. You get great discounts like the one I just mentioned from Safecastle, Western Botanicals gives you their preferred membership, which is your $50 value, and you get 25% off everything they sell, uh, so that alone covers the cost. And some other cool content, along with every edition of the Survival Podcast ever published in convenient zip files. So uh, make sure you take a look at doing that while it's on sale. And last but not least, do consider connecting with me. Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter would be the best way to do that. Check out the Survival Podcast Gear Shop for cool affinity items and uh, Check out our forum. There's uh, thousands of members of TSP there that would love to connect with you and share information and knowledge. With that, let's go ahead and take your first call today. Hey, Jack. This is Jared from Michigan. Um, I just want to get your opinion, um, your take on whether or not you see an advantage to having a rifle and a handgun that are both chambered in the same round. Um, this has been something I've been looking into, and I've seen several people with the opinion that you know, using a handgun round and a rifle, um, it would be underpowered and basically pointless. But I see the advantage of having only one type of ammunition to worry about uh, for both weapons, uh, you know, in a uh, bug-out situation. Um, just want to get your opinion on that, uh, if you think it's a good idea or not, and if so, uh, if you have any suggestions. All right, um, love the show. Thank you for the podcast and everything that you do, Jack. Talk to you later. Bye. Um, this is another one of those areas where I think some people say things without really thinking them through, like, well, there's no point to having a rifle with a handgun cartridge in it because it's just not very powerful. Well, really? And then you hand that person a .44 Magnum handgun, and they say, oh, this is a cannon. Oh, look at this. You can kill elephants with it. Really? And it's not actually uh, producing a higher velocity and more muzzle energy when I take it out of its you know, 6 or 9-inch or 8-inch or barrel uh, and put it into something like a 16 or 22-inch barrel in a Marlin lever gun? Well, I guess it is. Okay, well then, how did it go from being a cannon that can kill an elephant, which, by the way, you really shouldn't hunt elephants with forty-four Magnum. You are a little bit undergunned there, uh, to being like this pop gun when I put it in a carbine just because it kicks less? So I, I do think there's an advantage. Now, I think that there is, like most things, there's another side to the equation. 
So, I mean, let's say you live somewhere out in kind of the open plains country like Wyoming or uh, the, the, you know, the, the, the plains side of Colorado or something like that, and you hunt animals like elk and mule deer with routine shots of 200 to 300 yards are, are very, very common out there. Well, then having a centerfire rifle that has a great uh, advantage in trajectory and being able to reach out there and take those longer shots, you know, especially if you're hunting things like pronghorn out on the plains and all. A lot of guys use .243 for that. Some people think it's undergun, but a lot of pronghorns have found their way into becoming steaks, chops, biltong, and jerky uh, via the .243. It works quite well. So there's there's kind of really a point where both sides of the equation have a point. But to me, it's not really about power, it's about range. And the reason I say that is there ain't nothing in North America that if you put a couple 265-grain flat points into out of a 44 Magnum uh, into the vinyls, isn't going to go down and die. Um, I, I don't know that I would really feel comfortable if a grizzly was trying to eat me uh, armed with that. I might something, want something a little bit, uh, a little bit more uh, oomph to it. Uh, but honestly, it will do the job. It just may not do it quickly enough to keep me from being, you know, chomped on. Uh, but in most cases, it still would even do that. So for me, kind of the if you can't tell yet, the optimum multi uh, caliber or multi uh, platform caliber is the 44 Magnum. It's uh, it's very shootable in a handgun. I think that a lot of people uh, think that it's really like too much recoil to handle, but if you'll take your time and maybe work up to starting out learning to shoot the platform with 44 Special, I think that you can teach most kids to shoot the 44 Magnum well, and that means just about any adult can learn to shoot it well as, as well. Um, I was out hunting with 44 Magnum handguns with supervision as required by law uh, at the age of 16 and able to competently use a uh, 44 Magnum handgun to take deer size game. So uh, if I could do it at 16, most people in their 20s and up are going to have no problem at all learning to shoot it well. So it's kind of the upper end of the platform, I think, that people learn to shoot well. 41 Magnum, if there were a lot of carbine options, would be another good one. 357 is good, not as good. And I'll tell you why. It's actually damn good in a carbine, but I find it a little bit light in a handgun for taking deer size game. When you take the 357 Magnum and you put it into something like a 16-inch barrel of a, uh, of a light-action carbine like the Marlin Lever gun or a 22-inch barrel, you get a muzzle velocity that's equivalent to the old 357 Maximum, and that was, at the time it was put out, the most powerful handgun by muzzle energy standards in the world, even more powerful by muzzle energy standards than the 44. So it's a great gun when you take it up into the carbine status, certainly good enough for uh, your medium-sized game animals, and it actually has a very flat trajectory out to 100 yards, flatter than the 44. So both of those, the 357 and the 44, have a lot of versatility uh, when put into these platforms. And as long as you're going to restrict your shooting to about 100 to 120 yards, then good. So then the tactical ass clown says, but you know, man, maybe I need to snipe a guy at 350 yards. If you're sniping somebody at 350 yards, ass clown, in your little Red Dawn fantasy, um, you're not self-defending, okay? Um, if you talk to most police snipers and urban snipers, uh, they're not taking 300-yard shots. They're taking 50-yard shots. Um, so if you were competent with that weapon, it would work well for that. If there was ever actually on the one in a million chance the need to do it, 
and uh, a justifiable uh, need to do it. Now, there are people that say things like, well, what if we have the complete breakdown of society and all the rules are out the door? And fine, and that's why I'm an AR. Uh, that's why I have scoped rifles. And I hope I never need them for that. I hope that the AR remains something I train with and, and have sporting affinity with and have a lot of fun with and think back to being a soldier every time I pick it up. And all my scope rifles are used for doing things like taking deer at 250 yards. Uh, but those are there as well. But for, for daily use, actually there's quite a bit of utility in putting them together. And I'll, I'll rehash uh, uh, some stuff I've said a long time ago about the 44 Magnum lever gun and some of the really cool things you can do with it. Uh, with shot shells down to about a 44 Magnum shot shells now. CCI makes them. And you can load your own. There's some ways to do that. You know, you can take things like grouse and other small game birds, uh, out to a range of about 10 to 15 yards. Uh, now, they don't have anywhere near the density, and because of the rifling in the barrel, the, the pattern kind of goes away from you. But at 10 yards, they're pretty damn effective on things like grouse and, and other small game, maybe something like woodcock and uh, things like that. So uh, kind of an impromptu or survival need there could be met with it. If you take the 44 Magnum and you go into the old Lee manual, the one that's probably hard to find now, and you get the, the heaviest uh, or the lightest 44 special load you can find for 300 grain cast lead bullets, um, which I will publish probably not today, but maybe next week for you guys when I dig it back out of the archives, uh, or get a chance to go through my reloading manual. And you fire that, it sounds so quiet that you can hear the hammer fall, and yet it will penetrate seven inches of solid, uh, four by four. Uh, I say seven inches because they're actually three and a half inches. So you take two pieces of pressure treated, uh, four by four wood, put them back to back and shoot it with that, and it goes right through them. So it's got a lot of power, but yet it's very, very quiet because it's a small amount of powder in a long barrel. I would say it would be as effective as something like a 50 caliber muzzle loader, uh, out to ranges of about 50 yards where the accuracy begins to go away with that round, at least in my rifle, and extremely quiet. So, um, there's so much utility right there, you almost wonder, well, yeah, why do I need the 44 Magnum handgun? Right. Um, but you know where handguns are really for? Handguns are when you can't carry a rifle due to uh, the conditions around you or due to legal reasons or whatever. So you carry the handgun instead of the rifle. So is there an advantage? Yes. Is it right for all situations? No. Uh, should you do it? The answer is if you want to and it makes sense for your situation, absolutely. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Nathan. My question was about the uh, game of getting a loan. Um, me and my wife are looking to get a house here soon and a little while back we went to the bank and tried to get pre-approved we had a good size down payment but we didn't even get to that point i have a steady job uh make good money my credit was uh, as far as i was concerned real good because i didn't have anything bad on it but uh we couldn't get a loan because uh, uh a couple credit cards that I didn't use because I stopped using credit cards. Uh, uh, they uh, closed my accounts because I wasn't using them, and, and that well, uh, I guess that was bad because they added to my. It gave me a little bit of bad credit. So the uh, bank wouldn't loan me anything. They recommended that I uh, get a few more credit cards and use them every once in a while, and and uh, bring up my credit score that way. So that's what I've been doing, and. Uh, soon we're, we're planning on trying to get pre-approved again but i just wonder why that is uh why a, a bank wants wants to loan to someone that has credit cards rather than to loan to someone that that uses cash and uh 
um, is responsible. Anyway, uh, look forward to your answer. Thank you. The reality right now is it's difficult for a lot of people that could have got a loan easy just a couple years ago to get a loan, but it actually probably has very little to do um, with credit score uh, as long as you talk to the right bank. And I think your biggest problem here initially, and I don't know your full situation, so I have to kind of assume some things here. You're talking to the wrong kind of bank. There's two kinds of banks out there. There's banks that get you a loan through somebody else underwriting them, where the bank just basically looks at the paperwork, knows what their underwriter will and will not approve, and if they will approve it, they send it off and get you a loan, and if they think that based on those criteria their underwriter won't approve it, they just tell you no. And that's the kind of bank most people go to, and that's why people do dumb shit, uh, like think they need to use credit cards to be able to get a mortgage, which is just nonsensical. Uh, and there's nothing that gives you bad credit by paying off a credit card and canceling it. Um, maybe it will reduce your score, your bozo score, as, uh, as I call it, uh, but uh, none of that matters. None of that matters if you go and pick up the phone and start calling local smaller branch branch banks and ask this question, does your bank underwrite its own loans? And when you get something that says, yes, I would like to make an appointment with your loan officer about getting a loan and transferring my accounts from my bank that won't give me a loan to your bank. And you move your savings and your checking into their bank because now you're dealing with a bank that actually deals with you as a person versus a bank that just sees you as a number so they can sell your shit to somebody else. So when you find that bank and you walk in, what they're really going to want to know in this day and age, one, how much can you put down? You say it's sizable down payment. If it's 10%, they're probably going to work with you, uh, but it may be difficult depending on whether you have any bad payments or anything like that in the past. If you're looking at 20%, then they're going to give you the loan, period. Uh, assuming one other thing, you have cash flow. The only two criteria that banks that are underwriting their own, underwriting their own loans right now are really looking at Cash flow, okay, how much cash flow do you have versus your expenses? So cash flow versus expense, and um, how much down payment you're going to put. So how do you limit their risk for them? If they're only taking an 80% risk on the property, they're a lot more comfortable with it, and they know that you're a lot more bound to the property than when you put down 2% or 3% for a Fannie Freddie Mac crap loan, okay? So that's what you need to do. You need to make sure that your down payment is solid, and I will tell you this, if you right now you can do 15% down, you're better off for the next six months saving the shit out of money, saving as much money as you can so you can go in with 20% down than using credit cards so your credit score will come up and the other kind of bank will give you the loan. Go in with the solid down payment. Go in with solid cash flow. Find a bank that underwrites its own loans and they will happily give you a loan right now because they would rather give you a loan for four or five percent, uh, than, than sit on the money for one tenth of one percent from the Fed, uh, in the little Ponzi scheme of holding Fed notes and trading them back in at the end of the cycle. Cause there's no way to make any money right now unless you put it out there. So banks want to loan money, but they want to loan money safely in this very, uh, treacherous environment that's now been created of course, by the banks and government together. But that's what you need is a bank that underwrites its own loan. So when you make your phone calls, don't go to the bank and waste your time. Call up three or four different small local banks, and until you get an answer, yes, we underwrite our own loans, hang the phone up, don't do business with that bank. All there really is to it. And uh, again, I think if, you need, if you're at 15% or 10%, you're going to be much better served saving up your money 
instead of using the time to build your credit in the words of the bozos. And let me put it to you this way. If you go out and you buy a house, let's say a $150,000 house, um, with less than 20% down, you are going to pay about $50 to $75 a month in PMI. If you go out with 20% down, and that's right up to 19%, by the way, if you go out with 20% down, you're not going to pay the PMI. So your overall payment will be lower, one, because you're financing less, two, because you're not being forced to pay Bozo Insurance. With that, let's go ahead and take another call. Uh, one more one more real quick. I didn't play it, but uh, this caller called back in with a second call. Wanted to know about interest rates, where I think they're going in the next year or two. Uh, do they need to panic and make sure they get uh, home rate now, or interest rates going to go way, way up? Uh, Bernanke came out not long ago and said they're going to keep the prime rate uh, near zero for at least two more years. Um I don't think this is a smart time to get into an adjustable loan because I don't think there's ever a smart time for that. Uh, and, and rates could go up, but they're not going to spring up overnight. They can't. Uh, they can't because the market already sucks. So until the market starts to recover in a meaningful way, they have to keep rates low. Uh, they already have a hard enough time finding qualified buyers. To raise rates now would be for the bankers to just pull out that 44 Magnum we were talking about earlier, put it up under their chin, and blow the back of their heads off. Um, let's go ahead and take another call now. Hey, Jack. I have a question about canning vegetables, um, specifically about water bath canning versus pressure canning. Um, I have a couple of canning books, and they both seem to say to use water canning when you can, such as for high-acid foods, but to use pressure canning only when needed for lower-acid foods. Um, I actually prefer pressure canning for everything. Um, I, I feel more comfortable with this, from a safety standpoint with the higher temperatures that are achieved, and the cooking times are less, so the whole process goes faster. My question is, why do people... Um, say to use the water bath method where you can and only pressure can where it's needed. I mean, is there a downside to pressure canning that I haven't thought of? Uh, thanks for what you do and keep it up. Great, fabulous, wonderful question, and the answer is yes. There is a uh, disadvantage to pressure canning everything. Pressure canning, let's talk about why it preserves things that we cannot preserve with a water bath canner. Um, because it actually operates at a higher temperature uh, by creating pressurized steam, which then exceeds the temperature of water and steam uh, in a non-pressurized environment. So it cooks hotter. All right. So that means that if we take something like beef cubes and stick them in there, we are going to get the temperature high enough to absolutely kill dead everything and anything that could ever exist in there. And as long as it stays sealed, that that environment will remain basically sterile. And that's great if we want to preserve beef because that's the only safe way to do it unless we're going to dehydrate it or biltong it or possibly in some ways pickle it. Biltong actually being a method of dry pickling, by the way. Um, so that's why we do it. So what does that tell us if we get our tomatoes and we chop our tomatoes up with a little bit of zucchini and we got all that acid in there and we can go in and water bath can that and, and that's going to go at a lower temperature. Um, and then we're not going to have to worry about anything because there's so much acid in those tomatoes that even if we add some other things to them, the acid environment will hold back anything that wouldn't be killed at the water bath uh, canning temperature. So why then is there an advantage to doing it with a water bath, which is just the hell with it, pressure can everything? Because that higher temperature cooks things at a higher temperature, and it destroys everything uh, from a nutritional value at a much higher level. 
So if we take our tomatoes and we pressure can them, we've actually uh, further degraded the nutrition and the texture and everything else in them. So if we took tomatoes that were water bath canned and we took tomatoes that were pressure canned, uh, the texture would be mushier in the, in the pressure canner um, and the nutritional value would be lower. So that's why if something is easily pressure canned or easily steam canned, uh, water bath canned, they recommend that you use the water bath method. Now you can use your pressure canner uh, for both. You just don't lock the lid on it. You set the lid on it without actually closing it up. And that's why I don't think it makes sense to have one of each other than two is one, one is none, that type of thing. But when you come to space saving, uh, we've gone to just using our pressure canner with the lid set on, not locked on, uh, when we steam can, and that works just fine. So that's why it won't hurt anything. There's no way that anything you're doing is going to harm you. Um, but I do say this. If you're worried that if you steam can... Uh, or pressure, or, I'm sorry, water bath canned tomatoes that there's a greater risk of any kind of pathogen or something like that. You're just being silly, right? I mean, it just, you, you, you're, you know, like the person, uh, that has to get the, uh, chlorine solution rag and wipe down every surface in their home three times a day. Um, it's just something that's not going to happen. If there is any, uh, thing that goes wrong in that type of a canning environment, as long as you're only canning the things with the high acid values and things like that, uh, the, the, the can lid will bulge and tell you that that's a can to discard. Uh, it's not gonna harm you. It's not gonna hurt you. Uh, but if you feel more comfortable the other way, what you're giving up is texture, flavor, and nutritional value, uh, when you cook at higher temperatures at that pressurized steam environment. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hello, Jack. Thank you for everything you do. I have a question regarding acquisition of uh, precious metal. Uh, last time I purchased gold, I own a little bit of gold and silver. The uh, price was twelve twenty on the gold. And in a couple of recent shows, you have used an arbitrary example of rebasing our currency with revaluing an ounce of gold at five thousand. If a person is holding announced that they purchased at 1220 and the gold is revalued to 5000 would that not be a hedge on inflation or do you see a confiscation issue or some other mitigating factor negating the uh, the hedge your comment would be appreciated and I thank you for everything you do again take care bye bye Um, it's certainly a hedge, and that's that's why we save gold. But I want to um, help people understand how it's not the big win that you think it is. This is where Jack's going to get a little bit uh, a little bit mathematical with you and give you some facts, and it may be a little bit hard to follow. Um, and keep in mind, if you buy gold at eighteen hundred to two thousand dollars an ounce, these numbers only get worse for you in the scenario you just described. So let's say I'm right. Let's say, and it is an arbitrary number, it's just a guess. But let's say that um, gold hits about. 2500 bucks. Um, let's say that the currency is being rebased for a variety of reasons, and gold is not why. Gold is just reflective of the underlying devaluation. So the reason gold's at 2500 is that it's all the money is really worth. And let's say uh, the powers that be decide that we're going to use this as an excuse to go back to the gold standard, and, and more on that issue in, the, in a, another call uh, in a bit on how that's not always good. But here's one way that it may not be as good as you think, even if you are holding gold. So they come out with these new dollars, and these new dollars 
almost overnight uh, receive a 50% inflationary spike. In other words, they're cut in half. You have $10,000 in the bank today. Uh, after this move, you have 10,000 new you know, Federal Reserve space credits in, in the bank, but now they only buy what 5,000 used to buy. That's what I'm predicting. Now, how does that work for you if you're holding gold? Does it make you wealthy, or does it just help reduce the risk? Well, understand one thing. The Federal Reserve does not really impact the tax code other than the tax code exists to serve the Federal Reserve. The government and the IRS operate the tax code. They're not going to give you uh, a, a tax credit because of the inflation. They never do, right? So you're sitting on your gold you bought for $1,200. They do this whole funky monkey thing and new money comes out and gold uh, mysteriously becomes worth $5,000. Now you're holding $5,000 worth of gold. The reality, though, is you're only actually holding $2,500 worth of purchasing power uh, versus what it did for you before. Now, you can get real simple with the math there, but let me make it a little bit more complex for you just because, while well, it's fun to do that. You're going to pay tax on the gain, right, of about 28% when you sell gold. Okay, so to use the gold in the economy, because we can't just use gold as money, we're going to have to pay tax on it because we're going to have to convert it. So I'm not worried about them confiscating it. What I'm worried about them saying is the currency is gold back, but you can't use gold to, to do commerce with. You still have to use the currency that's backed by gold to do commerce. So if you want to spend your gold uh, in any meaningful level, you're going to have to go ahead and, and, and convert. And when you convert, they're going to say, what you pay for it? you say $1,200. And they're going to say, what you sell for it? you say $5,000. And they're going to say, great, that's your gain. You're going to say, but no, this is the new money. They're going to say, it doesn't matter. So you're going to pay taxes on it. After you pay taxes on it, you're going to be left with about $3,900 an ounce after you pay your gains tax, assuming buy at 12 and sell at 5K. So now you're going to have $3,900. Well, that, that sounds better than the $1,200 you started with. But remember, the value of that $3,900 is now cut in half and it's worth about $1,950. And you've taken the risk and the hold and everything else Uh, so you've profited, what, about $750, bucks, $700? Um, so you can see how, yes, it's a hedge, and I know those numbers might kind of confuse people, but again, just think about it this way. If what I say is, is likely to happen occurs, and they re, do revalue gold at, let's say, $5K an ounce uh, against the new dollar, but the dollar's value cuts in half, the gold's purchasing power is cut in half versus our mental state on the 5K. It still helps, but it's not like, okay, if I was holding a 1,000 ounces of gold uh, that were worth $200,000, I'd become a millionaire when this happens. On, on some levels, numerically, maybe, but remember what I've been telling you about, as I told you yesterday about this, this backsliding as a status, that the millionaire of the future becomes a half a millionaire when there's a 50% inflation spike. So it's an insurance policy against inflation uh, and a currency revaluation. Um, and you also have to realize that they may play some kind of shenanigans. It probably will be a confiscation, but what they may do is, up the gains tax and say, look at all these evil gold hoarders out there. We need to tax them at 50% because that way we can pay for all these programs we can't afford anymore so that we can help the poor. So there's always a risk there. That's just one way to look at it. Does that mean you shouldn't hold gold? Absolutely not. It's a great case for holding gold. It's just also a case for not putting all your money into gold and thinking you're going to get rich on when, when this happens. It's not designed to make you rich. It's not designed to make me rich. It's designed to make them rich. And of course, them, they 
are the elite banking layer and the Federal Reserve layer, and they make money no matter what happens. More on that from another caller in a bit. Let's take another call now. Hey, Jack, long-time listener. Uh, great show. Uh, this is Brennan from Connecticut. Um, I was listening to your uh, Everyday Carry uh, podcast not too long ago, and uh, I was just wondering what your thoughts were on uh, carrying some small amount of cash on hand, possibly in a uh, capsule on a keychain or something like that. Um, I know you didn't mention it as part of your carry, but uh, I figured it might be something important to have. Um, also, on a separate note, um, as far as uh, getting fire for EDC, I carry a Zippo. Um, but I often find that if I don't use it, it dries up within a couple days. Uh, I don't know if you have any uh, methods of keeping the, the fuel uh, wet or uh, moist in there so it doesn't dry out, or um, if you just kind of got to add it every few days if you don't use it. All right, thanks for all you do. Bye. Well, first, I always carry cash. And generally speaking, I carry uh, some small bills and generally maybe one big bill. And uh, I carry those uh, with my Gerber EAB uh, around them at, like a mini money clip. Uh, and I just carry that in my pocket. And that way, if I'm ever uh, held up for my wallet, uh, if I don't have an immediate chance to shoot son of a bitch between the eyeballs and I do need to surrender my wallet, uh, he's getting away with some bank cards that I can cancel on my ID and no money. Um, so they keep them separate from each other that way. I don't do a lot of concealing money on me. If I need to go somewhere for a long time and I need to conceal money on me and I need to carry more than I usually do, uh, I would look to things like a money belt. I think can carry a lot more than trying to cram uh, a couple bills into a capsule on a key ring. Uh, I also am the kind of person that's more likely to lose my keys than just about anything else. Uh, so if I, if you lock your keys in your car, right, and your money is on your key ring, uh, then you, you, you know, I guess maybe you could pay the locksmith when he comes get you back in your car when you get your keys out, but maybe you need some cash until you're able to do that. So uh, keys tend to get locked behind doors and locked in vehicles from time to time, so it's not really why I want my cash. If you want to do it, I have no problem with it. Having it as a little extra stash is fine. I also think there's a lot of things that make sense, like a, you know, using a magnetic box, putting maybe a $20 bill in it, putting that in some part of your vehicle you can get to even if the vehicle's closed or locked up, uh, and maybe having a couple little stashes here and there of some small bills. When I say small bills, I'm like fives and tens and twenties and, you know, 50 bucks here, 20 bucks there. Uh, for some people, that's not really doable, man. They need every penny they can get their hands on. But as you have some surplus cash, keeping a little bit of it here and there makes sense. I don't leave home without cash in my pocket. I don't think you should either. How you carry it is up to you, though. Uh, on the second part of your question, this is actually one of the reasons I'm not a big fan of the Zippo lighter and why I like butane lighters. Yes, they're cheap. Yes, they're more prone to uh, to wind and what have you and, and, and whatnot. Uh, but you take a cheap pick. And uh, it works, and it doesn't dry out. And if it does start to, you know, uh, go away at any point for you, you can buy like five packs at Walmart for like two dollars and fifty cents. So you chuck it out, and you get another one. Also, of course, there's the disposable butane lighters that have like little torch type windproof. And if you're that's concerned for you, that's what I would go with. Um, I don't know a way to make a Zippo lighter uh, not evaporate lighter fluid. That's really how they're designed. So uh, remember, the Zippo, what it was really designed for was a smoker, somebody that used it all the time. 
Uh, so they were using that fuel and uh, uh, constantly replacing it. So it's not really designed for someone to carry it around and only want to light a fire with it once in a while. I'll also tell you that I think probably what makes more sense, you're talking about capsules, uh, get yourself a capsule and some uh, some wet light tinder or something like that, some kind of chemical accelerant and a ferro rod, put that on your keychain, uh, that'll give you sure fire. So those are my thoughts on your questions there. If you want to do it your way, that's fine. I don't have any problems. I wouldn't say you're much more prepared carrying a Zippo than a person with nothing, uh, but you're going to be refilling it often. If anybody knows a way to prevent that, let me know. Um, I guess you could get a small Ziploc bag uh, and keep it in there, and that would probably keep it uh, more uh, from, from drying out. I don't know if there's any downside to that because it's not what I carry. Um, with that, let's go ahead and take another question. But anybody that has thoughts on Zippos and improving their longevity for carry, uh, let us know in today's show notes. Jack, great job at what you do. I'm calling because you uh, introduced me to the world of gardening, and now I have problems. I'm trying to figure out which way is better, the uh, lighter way of gardening or the uh, square foot gardening. I started a square foot garden. I'm having a little bit of problems. It ran all right at first, but now I'm thinking that uh, Mel Bartholomew's mixture isn't giving me the uh, nutrients and uh, you know that I need to make it grow great and I was also wondering if you could possibly do a show on beneficial nematodes it's uh, a little complicated for me to uh, quite get it I need somebody with some knowledge and background thanks keep it up Well, what you actually seem to be asking about there is really a soil fertility issue, not a layout issue. So with the square foot gardening method, it's simply a layout method. It really has nothing to do with the fertility. Now, Mel's mix of vermiculite, peat moss, and uh, compost should be quite fertile. But is it going to be fertile forever? Or are you going to have to continue to improve the fertility in it? And the answer is you're going to have to continue to improve the fertility in it. Uh, Mel seems to believe that every time you change out a square, you throw in one or two trials of uh, compost to that one square, manage that one square foot of soil, and you'll never have any fertility needs. Mel is not correct. Now, um, depending on what you're growing, that may work, but in some other food, uh, you know, uh, high, uh, high hungry feeders, it, it may not work. If you start when you do that, also ch chucking in a trial full of blood and bone meal, uh, with high nitrogen and start using mulch, And uh, also do things like with your mulch, throw some of the stuff you would normally compost, compost underneath the mulch uh, and get a variety of things going on there. You'll probably improve your soil fertility. That said, I have kind of gone away from the square foot gardening method myself because on some levels I find the densities a bit too much. And I actually think that if you go to more of a staggered row approach, a John Jevons style approach, you can actually get higher density uh, over, successfully. Um, but I've actually also kind of backed off on the density thing a little bit. Give some plants some room. Uh, let, let, you know, you can have a bunch of little plants or one really big plant, and the one really big plant is stronger, more robust, uh, more resistant to pests. 
and uh, will feed you just as much as four small plants. And nothing could be more true of that than things like, you know, lettuces. If you get a great big giant lettuce plant with leaves you can just keep taking off doing cut and come again, uh, that's got a lot more than when you cram four lettuce plants into that one square foot. So some of Mel's recommended densities I, I'm not really in love with. Uh, but I don't think that's your issue either way. Now, it might be. Uh, if you're doing things where you're planting four or five plants to a square and they just don't seem to have enough space, try reducing the density and you may be better off. But what you really sound like you're asking about is soil fertility. Uh, and again, there's nothing wrong with Mel's mix. It just, it, it's not a forever mix. We have to continue to always feed soil and improve soil. We do that with organic matter. It's also getting into fall. If you don't fall garden, uh, heavily, uh, take your, take your bed and plant it with something like, uh, winter pea, bell bean, and vetch, and maybe even some Caius oat. And uh, get, you know, just enough to do your bed or beds and plant that and let that grow through the winter. And in the spring, turn that into the soil. And that'll be another method of soil fertility enhancement. Uh, but, but square foot gardening is really about the allocation of space and the, the way that we manage soil. It's not really about the fertility by itself. And then the other thing I'll tell you is if let's say it just never worked really well for you, uh, maybe the compost that you got wasn't a great compost. So maybe we need to enhance that with some other sources of compost. But one thing or another it seems to be the case. You need to enhance your soil's fertility. How you allocate your space is up to you. And I think that sometimes we make too much of that. As long as we're not uh, practicing monoculture, as long as we're doing a polyculture environment, uh, we're going to get just about all the benefits, no matter whether we do it in squares or hectagons or rows or what have you, or staggered rows. Uh, don't overthink this stuff. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Dave in Akron, Ohio. I uh, just want to thank you for the show with Baldy. That was awesome, totally incredible. Um, you know, I wish everybody in America would listen to that. Uh, the reason why I'm calling is I came across this movie the other night uh, called The Secret of Oz. I was wondering if you had ever heard of it or had watched it. It kind of covers the, uh, the battle between the banks and the government in, you know, the issuing of money, and I thought it was very, very enlightening. It's available on YouTube. Just do a search for Secret of Oz. Uh, it's about a two-hour movie, just a little under. Like I said, it was just very enlightening. Um, <clears throat> my kind of awakening started a couple of years ago reading Jekyll Island, and just thanks to what you're doing and, you know, other things I've been running into is just slowly coming awake what's going on. So thanks, Jack. Keep up the good work. Bye. Well, thanks for mentioning that. And that's a, a video I've recommended before. It's on my list of resources at trtam.com. That's a, a site called The Real Truth About Money. Again, trtam.com. There's a book over there that I've written called The Real Truth About Money. It's on the backside of the Survival Podcast Copper Medallion so that people can find it uh, as a viral method of spending the, spreading the message of honest money. Uh, and uh, I think it's a great video, and I think it's one everybody should watch. And everybody just thinks, if we just go to gold, if we just go to a gold standard, everything will be hunky-dory, needs to go watch that movie. They really do. And they need to watch the United States move to and away from gold over and over and over in its history. And they need to watch that every single time the move happened either direction, the people lost, the bankers won. Every time. Uh, with some very few exceptions, and the reality is whether you like it or not, the best things for people and the general public were actually fiat currencies. I know everybody went, <gasps> checks at the fiat word, and they, you know, I think this is fiat that we have now. No, this is debt backed. Fiat means government issues it, 
says it's money and it's money. And it has money because it's backed by the government. Uh, not that I'm all for that, actually. I'm just saying that, like, everybody points to the greenback as a catastrophic failure. Actually, the greenback worked just fine under Lincoln. Uh, people point to the Continental. The Continental worked just fine until the ships sitting off the coast of, uh, of, 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 you know, the colonies at the time started counterfeiting it and dumping it into their economy to destroy its value. So, um, we can be misdirected in either way. Let me say this. I am for a solid currency. I'm for it based on the value of the nation overall or based on the nation's gold reserves. I don't really care how we do it. What I'm not for is, is a situation where with no reasonable increase in the underlying value of the nation itself, whether it's from the, the, the wealth accumulated through the reserves of something like gold and silver or through the wealth of the nation based on its output and its production that we can just inflate the money supply independent of that. That's what we have today. This is what people do not understand about the current economy and the current monetary system. It's not that the money supply can be expanded or contracted that is the problem. A good currency should expand and contract. It should expand and contract based on supply and demand within the society and the underlying wealth or value of the society as a whole, its wealth production levels. Okay, So it should expand and contract. It, it, it has to. If, if half the people die and none of the money contracts, then there's less people, the money ratio. If nothing happened to increase the value, and that's an extreme example, but in that case, the money will experience inflation. There's more money uh, for the same stuff or for less stuff, and the velocity increases and inflation comes. So... A, a good system, a good system will self-adjust, right? So it will have free market components of it, but it will not be controlled by a banking system. As long as the banks, and the banks in conjunction with government, so we have private and public forces working in conjunction to each other, which is fascism, economic, that's economic fascism, that means that they can inflate or deflate the currency at will at any time of their choosing with no requirement that any underlying value increase. So if we set up a, if you want to call it a fiat currency, that's fine, but based on a basket of what the nation's wealth is, our oil reserves, uh, our land reserves, our timber lands, our, our, our renewable and non, everything this nation has that has value, and you put that into a spreadsheet and it said that if we were going to value, you know, each dollar as one share in America, this is how many dollars we would come out with today, and, and base it on that. And as the wealth of the nation ex expands or contracts, the currency expands and contracts with it, that would work. If you take a whole bunch of gold bars and bear, take them out of the ground, from a, dig them out of one hole, and stick them in another hole called a vault, and then put them all there and said, this is how much wealth we have in gold, this is what we're going to base our currency on, one dollar will be worth whatever speck of gold it is, and that will be the way that it is. And if we want the currency to expand, we need to put more gold in there, uh, and if we want it to contract, we need to sell off some gold uh, and convert to somebody else's wealth mechanism. That would work too. Believe it or not, the first one would probably work better because it's a more realistic approach. I'll take either one over what we have now. But if you want to understand how just going to gold is not going to fix the problem... In fact, we'll make the problem worse until we switch away, which will, and we'll just keep going back and forth, and they'll win every single time, like the casino taking a portion of the pot. Please watch The Secret of Oz. Uh, belay your belief in the religion of gold long enough to actually understand the monetary history in our nation. Take all the information in, then make any decision you want.
But I don't know a better resource for that. Uh, the caller also called the second call and said, suggested I get this guy on as a guest. We'll look into it. We'll see what we can do. I'd love to have him on. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Matt in Dallas, Bones on the Forum. Um, I had an idea today while listening to your show with Bill Wilson about permaculture. Um, Bill Wilson's course sounds like a wonderful course. Having you as a guest instructor would make it even better. Um, you've got 25,000 listeners out here. Surely there's uh, 25 to 50 of us who'd be willing to pay for a uh, four or five-day course up there. Uh, I call it a survival podcast meets Midwest permaculture. Uh, maybe you guys could put something together where we could all uh, get together, meet with you, exchange ideas, and uh, learn a lot more about permaculture. Um, might be a good business opportunity for both you and Bill, and certainly would be a welcome opportunity for those of us wanting to learn more. Anyway, uh, just a thought. Keep up the great work. Good idea. Can't say I haven't kicked it around in my head before. I probably need to talk to Bill about doing that. One thing needs to be said about this. If you're going to go take a PDC, Permaculture Design Course, and get your credential, um, the course has to be taught by people that have not just a PDC credential, but an additional credential from the Permaculture Institute that says you are not only permaculture certified, you're certified to teach permaculture and certify others. So if I were to guest lecture at something like that, it would have to be additional time to the existing curriculum, and it would be kind of just a thing that would be there as a novelty, uh, because I would not be able to give the core material required for the certification, but I like the idea, and I always love the opportunity to get together with uh, TSP folks. On another unrelated but very similar note, in the spring of 2012, I will be in Dayton, Montana, for a week. The actual week, time, and specifics will be released next week, so there will be plenty of time for people to see if you want to come. I will not be there for a PDC. It will probably be a case that they will have a two-week permaculture design course taught by somebody other than Bill Wilson. Again, details will come next week, uh, two weeks in advance. And then the third week is the week I'll be there. And each day, Sepp Holzer will be lecturing, I think, through a translator, because I don't think he speaks English, and actually using uh, examples of how to transform the land that we're going to be looking at uh, into something like what he's done over in Austria. So that's not going to be dirt. It's not going to be cheap, right? I don't. I don't remember what the actual cost is, but I'm in. I'm buying a ticket. I'm going, uh, and I'll be there for a week. I will not be teaching. Seth will be teaching. I will be there to learn. But I would love to have a lot of survival podcast listeners come do that with me, and we can certainly talk about things when Seth's not instructing. I'll also be doing a lot more public stuff in 2012. We're planning it now. We're looking at different places. My wife is in love with Estes, Colorado. We're thinking uh, Estes Park, Colorado. We're thinking about maybe doing a, a event there in the summer next year. Maybe one here locally in the Hot Springs area or somewhere near us in the spring and, and one more maybe in the fall. I don't know if we can put four in, but I want to try to spread them out, give everybody an opportunity to come. They will be limited headcount events. There will be something like 50 people or something like that. If you would like to help with the organizational structure, uh, finding locations and working with myself and Dorothy to do that and provide us some logistics on that, we would love help from anybody. Just email me and let me know that. But I'll talk to Bill. I, I want to get up there and sit for one of his PDCs anyway. It's just a matter of every time I go away for a week or two weeks, how I pull myself out of the business here and I'm not here broadcasting. So I'm going to have to time that and work that out to where when I'm up there, I can keep broadcasting from there. Um, the whole Jack does two shows a day for two weeks 
uh, so we can go away for two weeks. It seems like a great idea. Until I do it, it, conf- it gets me all out of my rhythm. Because I've got shows that I've done that aren't going out for another week, and I feel like that information is already out there, and some of the time stuff is lost and all. So uh, I can only do that so much. So those are some of my limitations with travel and events and things like that. But, uh, you know, we certainly do a week here and there. It's not real hard to, to do that once in a while. Well, let's take another call. Jack, this is uh, Lost Airplane, Jeff in St. Louis. I was putting rice in five-gallon buckets yesterday to put in the storage and got down there and, man, I've got a lot of buckets full of rice and beans and stuff down there, a lot of long-term storage stuff. If an outsider or uninitiated type person would look and they'd say, good grief, we expect them there, end of the world. I got, I, I, my answer to them probably wouldn't make much sense, but I think it will to the, to the prepper community that listens to your show. Christy and I store a lot more long-term storage, cheap stuff, rice, beans, you know, that kind of stuff, than we really probably need to because we plan on giving that away if anybody comes to the door during a shit-hit-the-fan and needs some food. We do not plan to turn anyone away. What happens when your neighbors come to you and ask for food? You can turn them away, and then they'll go away, and they'll go home, and they'll go, well, he wouldn't give me anything. Well, we got to have food, so what are they going to do? They're going to pack up and leave. They're not going to come shoot you or kill you. They know you got guns. If you got prep food, you probably got guns. They're going to leave the neighborhood. And if all your hungry neighbors, you know, come to you and you say, no, I don't have anything for you, and they pack up and leave, you win. You got all the food, right? Sitting on a big pile of food? Well, if there's a real shit hit the fan and the zombies do come through the neighborhood and they're looting and they're drifting through and they're looking for stuff, when they see one lone house with a family living in it and everybody else is gone, duh, where's all the food? Where's all the good stuff? right there target time if i can feed my neighbors a little pasta beans and rice and keep them in the neighborhood not only are they kind of protective of us because we're feeding them they're helping to keep the neighborhood together as a community that's the only way we're going to survive a real shit hit the fan so that's our thoughts on it we plan on feeding our neighbors if the shit gets bad talk to you later bye um one of the best comments ever by phone on tsp Thanks, Jeff. I mean, I don't have much to add to that. I, I That's consistent with everything I've been talking about from the beginning. I think that any type of real food shortages that we're going to deal with are going to be relatively short-term, uh, one to two months before we figure something out. People are not going to sit around and just be hungry. Um, and I think it makes a lot more sense to feed your neighbor than, than to run them off with a gun. I also think that if you're the kind of person that would let the old lady at the end of your street starve, I, I really have no use for you, right? I just don't. I don't care if you survive or not. And I think that there is a very small segment of the prepper community that has this freaking egocentric bullshit where they think that they're so important that they need to stockpile two years' worth of food and then get in a, uh, into a pit and protect it and put out LPOPs and all this other freaking nonsense, and they think they're going to fight, you know, freaking Red Dawn 2 or whatever. And I think you're in a freaking delusional state if that's you. If you want to be that way, this is a free country, at least it's supposed to be, you can be that way, but that's not what I teach. Because it's not freaking reality. And I don't care how fortified your your uh, compound is, Red Donners, um, if you are sitting there and you're the only people there, eventually you will be overrun. Eventually you'll be overrun. You'll become a target because you're out in the middle of nowhere as a target. You stand out as a target. And you can think whatever you want, but I'm going to put it to you this way. Um, our boys get tore up in little towns and villages in Afghanistan and Iraq. And they are supported by air power. 
They have, you know, thousands of miles of supply line and supply chain. They have, you know, uh, hand, uh, you know, shoulder-fired rockets and missiles. They have the ability to call in air support. They have armor, and they still get tore up by communities that stick together. I'm not saying the communities are good guys. I'm saying that's the way that it works, okay? Uh, you are never going to have air support. I don't care what's in Patriots the coming collapse about mounting M-16s to ultralight aircraft. That's... I'm sorry, I love Rawls, I really do, I love his work, but you know, things in that book are fiction, please understand that, um, they're, they're fiction for the sake of fiction, uh, to make an interesting novel and get a bunch of information to you, um, it's not going to happen, you're not going to have a supply chain, uh, and you are going to be uh, sitting duck, so to put, if you are on your own. So I think it's much easier to feed your neighbor than shoot your neighbor, and I think it's the right and moral thing to do. Um, is, is to help out as best you can. Now, that doesn't mean you give them your really good stuff. Uh, like Jeff says, here's some freaking pasta and beans. Good luck, man. You know, at least it's something to eat. Uh, I think that we can really get communities through a lot by doing that. And I think that here's the big thing. If you get into a point where the community is in a short-term situation and you can go out and give away some food, you know, let's say some pasta and some sauce, right? You can do that because you know it's not a big thing. I think you'll you'll create a lot of preppers the first time you get the opportunity to do it. The first time everybody's iced in, snowed in, and you go around and say, what's what's up? And people tell you, I'm stuck and I'm kind of short on stuff, and you help them out, I guarantee you they're going to learn from the experience. They're going to ask you, how do I do this for myself? And then you can tell them, and you've built a strong community. So, Jeff, thank you for a well-thought-out comment. It also makes me think of one of our favorite guests of all time here. We'll be back on the show soon, uh, next week, Stephen Harris. Uh, the alternative energy uh, genius world is what I, I would refer to him as. When I first had him on, there was some about him that I just couldn't quite put my finger on going, There's, I, I know this guy. Well, it turned out his family preparedness talk that you can get uh, for free on his website, um, I had heard that. A long, long, long time ago, before he even had it set up on a website, I think somebody who had recorded it or got a copy of it had put it up on some sharing site somewhere, and I didn't listen to the whole thing, and I, I really didn't remember a lot of it, but I remembered one thing he said, he stores a lot of corn in buckets. Because if his neighbors come over, all they're getting is corn, that means they're not going to come back unless they're really, really hungry. Dried corn is not the greatest stuff in the world, but it will keep you alive. Uh, it's cheap, and it's cheaper to to feed your neighbor than to shoot them. Um, so I think that a lot of us are in sync on that, Jeff. Again, thank you. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack, Mike, and Boise, a.k.a. Scoob. Thanks for all you do, man. Uh, gardening question for you. Mulching. I've uh, completely latched on to it. My wife is a little bit behind me. She likes a tidy garden. I agree that nature isn't tidy. Anyway thinking about the whole chop and drop. There's certain things that people say you don't put in compost. What, a, like onions, for example. Are there any things you don't want to chop and drop with? Anyway, that's uh, all I got. Thanks. Well, you're definitely going to have less concerns about what you use in a mulch environment than in a composting environment because things break down much faster in a mulching environment where you have mulch on top of them in contact with the soil, lots of air exposure. For instance, if you throw a couple banana peels in your compost pit uh, and go back in two or three days, you can still see banana peels. They start to really break down, but they're there. If they're on the inside of the heated up part, they'll break down a little faster, but they're still in a day or two you could find a banana peel. If you take a great big pile of sheet mulch and you go out and you lift it up 
and you stick a banana peel under there and you put it back down. If you go back in three or four days and lift up that, you won't find it. It'll be gone. It'll absolutely be gone, especially if you have a lot of soil life, uh, earthworms and other things like that. So things like citrus peel and onion rind and stuff like that, they take a long time to break down, and those little creatures don't eat them. They don't like the citrus oil. They don't like the onion. They're both a repellent. I would worry less about some leftover onion stuff uh, than citrus peel. Citrus peel is um, it's got citrus oil. And it's going to be a natural repellent. So that's about the only thing I would really worry about there. Chop and drop, though. Let's talk about that a second in permaculture. Chop and drop is where we grow a tree or a bush that we know will cop as well. Something that when we cut it, it's going to grow back more than we started with. And we're going to want to do that at a certain time of the year. And generally speaking, we're going to want to do that at the end of the season, at the end of the summer, uh, as we're going into fall where the leaves are going to fall off. We're going to lose the shade anyway. And it's going to be very moist through the winter, and that means all the stuff we drop is going to do a really good job of breaking down, staying in place, and things like that. If we chop and drop in the spring, we lose our shade, right? And uh, the trees have a very hard time growing back when we've we've kind of chopped them right as they had just kind of got their stride going. And uh, the ground is dry, and the stuff doesn't break down as well. So the time of year is important. The other thing is, where do we do this? In our gardens, our Zone 1 uh, vegetable gardens, and our Zone 1 permanent plantings, our bushes and shrubs and stuff like that, generally these are more tender things. This is where we're doing irrigation, or we're doing irrigation... Uh, uh, elimination methodologies like culture beds or something like that. We're using fine mulch. We're doing uh, maybe not a lot of work, but we're actually managing things intensely in zone one and in kind of in a zone two. As we move into zone three, we get into like the farm forestry and things like that, main crops, and we're further out. This is where we're doing our rough mulching and our, 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 our uh, chop and drop. Now, if you're sitting on a quarter acre lot, you're like, well, whatever. But you still, you kind of manage things that way. The herb garden, the vegetable garden should be close to the kitchen close to the front door right out there in plain view if something's wrong you should see it right away be able to address it that's for your finer mulches as far as mulch and tidiness you're right when you tell your wife nature's not tidy I don't think that gardens look less tidy when they're mulched though I think mulch actually makes them look better uh, bare dirt is not attractive uh, a thick layer of leaf and stem mulch or straw mulch to me is very, very attractive. So I guess that's all relative. But great question there at the end. Uh, folks, I appreciate your questions. I appreciate your calls. I'll try to get some extra ones done. We're going to be in Salt Lake City in a couple weeks, so I'll have to have a couple extra shows for that anyway. I've got some really great guests coming up next week. I've got a big announcement next week, again, about where you can come meet with me and Sepp Holzer and hang out in Montana for a week with us. Uh, and uh, I'll be giving you more information in the coming weeks on our plans for TSP-specific events in uh, 2012. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. There's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess We follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way 